Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This episode is presented by Matt Fulton and produced by Chris Carr. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Secrets and Spies. On today's episode, I'm speaking with the veteran foreign policy journalist and Middle East watcher Laura Rosen. After four months of war between Israel and Hamas, the conflict seems to be entering a new phase with the possibility of another ceasefire on the horizon. She joins us to unpack what she's seeing from her reporting and discuss the delicate, ongoing diplomatic talks between the U.S., Israel, and the Arab states on how a post-war Gaza would be governed and what it might mean for the region. If you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star rating and review on your podcast streaming app of choice. And if you're not already, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It's super easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies. Your generosity helps keep this podcast going. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Laura Rosen, welcome to Secrets and Spies. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast, and certainly long overdue, I think. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And I actually remind me, I have a spy novel to recommend to you if, if you've not already read it. Okay. All right, cool. Yeah, we'll have to do that. Um, before we get started, uh, tell us about you and your work. I am a journalist who's covered largely U.S. foreign policy for a, a, a thousand years and seven million administrations. And particularly the last 10 or so years, I've been focusing a lot, as you and I have discussed before, um, U.S. policy to Iran. But the saga never ends. Yeah, yeah. We're recording this on Friday, February 9th, and the war in Gaza has just entered its fourth month. In that time, per UN estimates, over 25,000 Palestinians have been killed and about 2 million are internally displaced. Uh, the 254 hostages taken by Hamas on October 7th, roughly half were released during the November ceasefire. Among those that remain in Gaza, Israel now believes 32 are dead. The IDF recently claimed that 17 of Hamas's 24 battalions have been destroyed as functional combat units, although Hamas still governs the Strip and much of its senior leadership remains in place. Uh, shockwaves have been felt throughout the region. We've seen several skirmishes between the IDF and Hezbollah, uh, repeated attacks by Iranian-backed militias in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen, one of which killed three U.S. service members in Jordan, are being met with airstrikes by the U.S. and its coalition partners. Incidents of hate speech and violence against Jews and Muslims have skyrocketed worldwide. Yet despite all of the violence and untold human suffering unleashed by this conflict, there have been uh, sustained diplomatic efforts to mitigate its scope and severity and to navigate towards some more permanent negotiated end. Antony Blinken, Biden's Secretary of State, left the region yesterday, wrapping up a five-day trip to Israel, the West Bank, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Qatar. This was his fifth visit since the war began, and it comes amid a renewed push for a second ceasefire. Laura, can you tell us what he hoped to achieve during the trip and whether he was at all successful? That is a really good question. I think the um, people around him were saying this week they didn't have a big deliverables they were expecting. He's been, the last couple trips, he's been nudging along this plan that you mentioned that 
involves a post-war vision where Arab governments, including Saudi Arabia, would support reconstruction. And, and the Saudi condition for that is, is um, some sort of international commitment, if not Israeli commitment, to the eventual establishment of a Palestinian state. And so he's been trying to nudge that along. There's still a lot of Israeli First of all, they still feel incredibly insecure. Even from from our vantage point, I, I'm sitting in Washington. Where are you? I'm right outside Philly, not far. So from where I'm sitting, it's like, gosh, they really kind of flat yeah. Gaza, and they've killed so many people. And and you know, understand if they feel like they need targeted raids still to get certain Hamas leadership, right? But you know, from here, it looks like they've kind of overdone it. And you you heard we heard President Biden last night say. For the first time, you know, he thinks the conduct of the war has been over the top, you know, and he's been very reluctant to publicly to, to let go of the bear hug, right, of Israel. Um, but Israelis, if you talk to them, and I was at a four-month commemoration at the Israeli embassy earlier this week with families of some of the hostages, and, you know, they're still devastated, and they're still feeling incredibly insecure. And a lot of Israel's population that got moved away from Gaza when Israel started to retaliate for the massacre from October 7th, they haven't gone back yet. And then, of course, in the north, on the Lebanese border, a lot of the population is still um, away from that border because there's there's still some, not full-fledged escalation, but some escalation. So I Israel doesn't feel like they're in a great place for having a big compromise with Pal Palestinians. And it's not just Netanyahu, but from people I talk to, it's not just Netanyahu, and he's very, you know, good at aggravating Democrats and and uh, kind of looking unappreciative for the help he's getting from the United States. But um, I think it even goes beyond Netanyahu that, that there are other Israeli opposition leaders who are not eager to jump on Blinken and Biden's call for for getting behind that. So it's a it's a hard it is a really hard thing. And and so Blinken's trying to move a bunch of pieces forward. I think some of that is if you talk to U.S. officials, I do think they think that this the host, a new hostage deal and an extended pause ceasefire plan may be the key to get to a post-war, a place where we're talking about the post-war. So Netanyahu recently said he'll accept only total victory and that Hamas can be completely destroyed within months. As of this morning, it's looking like he's readying, he's readying um, an invasion of Rafah in the south. Does that suggest to you that he sees no real need for a new ceasefire at all? You know, that is a really good question. Um, my not terribly expert opinion is just, just my read is that, you know, he's a very maximalist talker. He's a big talker and, um, yeah, like kind of a desk pounder kind of. And I do think that a lot of the Israeli population still, they don't want to hear that Israel's wrapping up. Um, they don't feel like the big Hamas guys have been nailed. So he's saying sort of what I think his audience wants to hear. And, um, I don't know if, I would take it necessarily as a total rejection of a new ceasefire. I, I, I expect that negotiations are continuing. I think we heard Blinken say this week, I, I don't know if you noticed that, um, was it Wednesday? What, whatever day it was this week when Blinken was there, that, you know, he met, Blinken met with Netanyahu and then Netanyahu went and did his press conference. And then a few hours later, Blinken did his. They didn't appear together because they're not on the same page. And I think he, neither of them wanted to, you know, amplify that by being appearing together but i get the sense and uh, 
that there's still negotiations happening, even though Blinken said, you know, there were some non-starters in the Hamas response, which only came on Monday. Um, I don't think they they take Netanyahu's comments as a total walking away from a potential deal. Well, let's look at Bibi's uh, domestic political situation for a minute. What pressures is he under from his right flank and the wider Israeli public? Is it in his political interest right now to bring this war to a close? No. So, yeah, he has he has some right wing members of his government, you know, he has a very thin coalition, some far right members of his coalition who didn't serve much time in the military, who are ridiculing any hostage deal, who ridicule U.S. pressure. And um, so they're pressuring Netanyahu from the right, you know, for any kind of mitigation, of, um, don't want humanitarian aid going to Gaza, you know, all there. And so and he seems to be trying to keep them on board. If they if they pull out, then there'll be elections and it doesn't seem like Netanyahu's in a great shape to win those. Um, and he's also been campaigning recently, sort of saying, you you are familiar, we're all familiar with Netanyahu kind of campaigning against US pressure, appealing to the Israeli public as he being the kind of statesman who can uh, resist the United States and particularly Democratic presidents. So that's a familiar posture for him. I will say, I do think he and Biden have avoided some of the extremely, they've not, they've not been as sharp elbowed with each other and publicly with each other as, for instance, Netanyahu and Obama were, right? And then, so Netanyahu hasn't taken a direct shot at Biden. I think partly that's, he's genuinely grateful. I think that the Israeli public, from what I hear, they're extremely grateful to Biden and maybe yeah, extremely grateful to Biden. So maybe that wouldn't behoove Netanyahu anyhow. Well, that's a perfect segue into my next question. Could not have scripted it better. So Biden's received uh, heavy criticism from progressives and Arab Americans for the uh, administration's support of Israel, given the IDF's conduct during the war, as Biden, I think, for the first time publicly sort of alluded to last night. Yet behind closed doors, Biden and Blinken seem to have had profound frustrations with Netanyahu. A recent Politico piece reported that Biden privately called him a, quote, bad fucking guy. Uh, this is nothing new. Every president since Clinton, except for maybe Trump until the very end, uh, has grown to loathe him a bit. Can you speak to that dynamic a bit more? Maybe the, that lack of trust and shared goals and how that's affected negotiations? So I do think it's a little bit different. Is it? So I do think, you know, Biden, many people joke if, if you've observed him as a politician, especially at events where he speaks to audiences who care about Israel. Um, you know, he talks about meeting gold in my year as a young senator. And I don't know if many of you, I haven't seen it yet, but there's a movie about gold in my year, a former Israeli prime minister, 50 years ago when there was an invasion of Israel. And um, and so, you know, Biden's known Israel all that time and known Israeli leaders all that time. And I think his relationship with Israel is is, is really profound. And, and, um, and that, you know, he's known Bibi 40 years and Gosh, even if there's someone you profoundly disagree with when they've been in your life for 40 years, I think I'm not saying that there's a fondness or, but I, I don't think it's, I think they can radically disagree with each other and dislike each other and still have some kind of respect for the challenges that each other faces in a way that at least I'll say that Biden has that, I think, for someone in the position of Israeli prime minister. So, of course, I'm sure that they're incredibly frustrated and that they feel like Israel maybe is taking advantage of the of the bear hug. Does that make sense? You know that they that they that, that that it's not. Yeah, I don't know how to say it. I don't know. It's complicated. Yeah, that that yeah. Describe 
the bear hug strategy a bit for for listeners, because that sort of took a role in the U.S. response to this very early on. Can you say a bit more about what that is and 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 why? Well, yeah, you hold them very close. You give them a lot of reassurance, and 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 when they're feeling incredibly traumatized, you know, especially at the beginning when he said, you know, we're moving the aircraft carriers to prevent Hezbollah and Iran trying to deter them from from getting in the fight. Um, and giving them a little space to think out their strategy. And I do think that the U.S. also assessed, I've heard this from U.S. officials, that Israel was going to respond to the Gaza attack, how they were going to respond no matter what, no matter what the U.S. said, right? They were going to, and so you could either show support to them in public and maybe have more leverage with them in private to then say, you know, you guys, at the, at the beginning, even the Israel, not just Netanyahu, Israel's defense minister said, we're not going to let any water in. We're not going to let any, you know, humanitarian aid in. So the U.S. behind the scenes, they've been able to um, nudge and nudge and nudge to get more aid in, um, to get fuel in. You know, they're nudging constantly behind the scenes. Of course, it's, I'm sure, incredibly acrimonious. They were able to get to see the first ceasefire deal when they got the only time they got 100 hostages out and, and kind of nudge that along. And they, so there was they were able to have like some Israeli trust when Israel was feeling incredible, incredibly vulnerable. So that I think that's the Israeli strategy. And it seemed, you know, I think the U.S. vision of the timeline for Israeli action was, was that it was going to move to lower intensity operations by the end of last year. And Israel wanted another month, and now we're into early February. So, right, so now the, the pay is really wearing thin. And, um, and Israel's talking about a few weeks more to, you know, to do Rafa. Biden's basically talking about trying to get a, a hostage extended pause deal that he said last night he hopes could be extended into something like a ceasefire. What are the administration's must-haves for a ceasefire? I don't know if the administration is really the the one is is really the one calling the um the red lines on this because it's a you know there's part Qatar and Egypt kind of are the relays between Israel and and Hamas on this and the US is there as well. What are Israeli red lines? I don't know. The, um, I, I don't know this is about U.S. red lines. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, this, it's an Israel-Hamas deal, right? So it would be, it would be Israel's the, the one with the red lines. Yeah, thank you for that. So while the regional spillover has been significant, the more nightmarish scenarios of a true regional war that many, my, myself included, feared right after October 7th so far haven't come to pass, I say so far. Of course, Iran has activated its networks, although I think it could still choose to go a lot further if it if it wanted to. Hezbollah, by far the most powerful uh, Iranian proxy, uh, hasn't opened a northern front, and its secretary general, uh, Hassan Nasrallah, shows little appetite to do so, at least judging from his public statements so far. Netanyahu, likewise, hasn't ordered the IDF to do anything like, you know, I'd imagine a preemptively striking Hezbollah's forces in Lebanon or like making a run at Iran's nuclear facilities. From your reporting and conversations with sources, what's the likelihood that the administration persuaded Bibi against taking some game-changing escalatory action? I have heard and, and re- I've read basically that um, uh, the U.S. was quite alarmed early on that um, I think it was actually Israeli Defense Minister Gallant was talking about a preemptive strike on Hezbollah, and I think they they talked him out of that. And you know, I I don't know if you get all the Defense Department, State Department emails or whatever, but. You know, there are an awful lot of Secretary of Defense Austin calls to Gallant and 
um, while some of the readouts look, re- you know, about providing reassurance, a lot of them are the bear hug, right? The bear hug, don't don't do it, right? So, and then checking in, and and if you notice that there's a pretty much a, a minister or secretary of cabinet level person from the U.S. administration who's in, in Israel, pretty much every week, and they they just are getting in their faces as much as they can. One thing I've heard from U.S. officials is. Any agreement, even let's say they they got an agreement a few months ago about letting fuel get into Gaza so that the UN can fuel their trucks and sanitation to deliver aid and all that, you know, get water sanitation and all that. Um, Israel didn't want to do it. They're always saying that Hamas is diverting it. I I, I can't litigate the, the truth from here. But just every every deal they get, you know, with the war cabinet, and then it has to go right. The Israeli politics of it, because because whoever agrees on the Israeli side gets hammered from their right. And like the you know you you see the secretary announce the secretary of state announces it, the secretary of defense announces it, and uh and then a few days later you see there's a Netanyahu Biden call, and you see in the readout some mention of something that was already agreed that's not being implemented, right? It, 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 there's attrition, kind of. And so it just takes so much bandwidth to, to, manage, it, to manage it all. Um, and I think the U.S. is probably the only player, it's probably the only international player that has that kind of influence on Israel, and it, it, up to the presidential level constantly. So, but, you know, so they're, but they're having to do that on every single thing. I find, and your, your observation as well, probably of Netanyahu as a, Leader over the 20 years is he, he talks a big talk, but he's not the most trigger happy politician. He's not actually a big um, warmonger. He he deters a lot and wants to sound Churchillian and and, and I similar to Trump in a way actually. That Trump talked a big game, you know, talked yeah. but was not actually looking to um, always escalate into a big war. Well, that's a good point, you think. And I think it would it it runs contrary to the perception of many Americans. I mean, apart from up until October 7th, Bibi had never been a wartime prime minister. Well, except all the littler wars that, were, that weren't as big. I mean, you know, there have been lots of Gaza. There have been lots of- More targeted this, strikes and stuff, but not- I mean, God, Hamas, even in- tw- We forget because- it's been overtaken by so many other events, but um, even in 2021, there was Hamas firing into Israel rockets and and then uh, Israeli retaliation. But there had been a kind of pause, or a, a what do you call it? I forget what I forget what they call it. A hudna or like a. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Let's take a look at the role the Saudis and the rest of the Arab street are, are playing here, as you sort of mentioned a bit at the start. Blinken met with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. On Monday, uh, this follows reporting from Axios that in January, officials from Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, and the Palestinian Authority secretly gathered in Riyadh to discuss ways to involve a revitalized Palestinian Authority in governing post-war Gaza. Uh, The Palestinian Authority was famously run out of Gaza by Hamas in 2006. What can you tell us about those efforts? They're openly, not secretly now, Saudi Arabia is hosting another such meeting this this week now, the the Jordanians and the... um, and the Qataris and um, the P- Palestinian Authority is represented there. I apologize if I forget. I think Egypt probably as well. So, yeah, I mean, there it looks like after the Blinken trip that they're sort of advancing how the Arabs could support post-war reconstruction in Gaza. How can they advance, help support advancing a Palestinian state? You know, what what's most interesting to me, I don't know if you've noticed this, but like, you and I having lived through the United States um, invasion of Iraq post post 
war, uh, occupation of Iraq, etc. And then the ISIS, the going back into counter ISIS in Syria and, and Iraq. We're familiar with the U.S. having used the Kurds, for instance, after they clear ISIS from Syria and Iraq, Mosul and, 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 and Raqqa, um, you know, that the Kurds helped hold the territory. The U.S. didn't have the troops on the ground, didn't have that kind of strength um, or presence to, to hold the area. And what's most interesting about the IDF operation in Gaza is like they finished with North Gaza and then they sent tens of thousands of reserves home. When they, they started to concentrate on central and now southern Gaza and they don't have anyone to hold it. And they haven't decided who, who the who is because Netanyahu doesn't like the Palestinian authority. He's always kind of preferenced Hamas in a weird way over the Palestinian authority because he, some people think he didn't want a peace partner. And then, you know, and they say that Hamas is ISIS and they can't have any military or, or governing authority in Gaza. So they have nobody to hold it. And they have it. And so it's, it's like, well, how are you? And so what happens? Who shows up after a while, after there's a vacuum? Hamas, I'm not saying militants. And, and you know, I'm sure some of these are just technical, you know, people. But so they haven't figured that out. And it doesn't seem not clear how... Israel can resist the U.S. saying you need to have a Palestinian state, but I don't understand just the, the tactical Israeli um, plan for success in Gaza, since they don't seem to have any plan of who else is going to govern it, right? Yeah. So it seems like the Arabs are sort of thinking about that, and 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 um, maybe at some point Israel will feel they're in a position to to um, entertain a discussion about how Arab Arab governments can can help them with that. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more. The Palestinian Authority, uh, led by Fatah, the other big Palestinian political party that sort of governs the West Bank, they've been kind of notoriously corrupt and ineffective for many years. Their their leadership is old, been around forever. Do, do, do you know anything about what a revitalized Palestinian authority would actually look like? Like, how would you do that? No, it's a really good question. And there, um, there I'm sure there's better reporting. And I bet there's a lot of, um, you know, this is what the State Department bureaucracy, I bet there are a lot of people writing memos on this and doing planning. And um, I should, it's, that's a good story idea, actually, is to start, start pulling on that. You know, there's talk about tra- U.S. train, some sort of international training of the reform PA security forces to do stuff in Gaza. I think David Ignatius at the Washington Post had a piece last week talking about the U.S. thinks that would take eight to 10 months. Israel doesn't seem to have agreed to that yet, but I don't know what you do for a year to secure the territory. Yeah, you have millions of people there. Yeah, so I don't know if they're going to pretend that these people aren't Hamas or, you know, if they get rid of the big Hamas, the sort of name brand Hamas people like Stenwar, they convince them to go somewhere else. Israel seems to want some scalps of people that they know of. But um, if they convince the big name people to go and kind of decapitate Hamas, could they they then rechristen the Hamas bureaucrats as, as 
Palestinian, reform Palestinian authority bureaucrats. I don't know what the planning is for that. Well, it sort of reminds me in a way of the conundrum that the Allies faced after 1945 that, you know, you needed someone to run West Germany and then all of the bureaucrats just ended up being defrocked Nazis and no one really talked about it because someone that's, someone has to make the trains run on time. That's interesting. Yeah, I you think- know? Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. But, you know, we also remember Paul Bremer in uh, in, uh, in Iraq and like casual decisions to disband the, uh, you know, the Iraqi army that led to bad outcomes. Yeah. Right. Those, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's an important thing to, to keep in mind and probably watch for the for the months ahead. I will say I met yeah. with Saudi source um, also last week and and, you know, the Saudis, it, it maybe more than I would have expected. They want this framework that the U.S. has been advancing for Israel-Saudi normalization in which Saudis would get goodies from the United States, some sort of security guarantees, some sort of help with their civilian nuclear infrastructure. It seems for Israel-Saudi normalization, Saudi Arabia openly says there, there are two conditions for that are um, an end to the war in Gaza. And and it's interesting, their language, they, they quibbled with something the NSC spokesman said the other day that I missed. I missed his language. But um, their language about recognition of a Palestinian state, as I remember, it didn't say that Israel had to recognize a Palestinian state. So, And you heard David Cameron, the, the British foreign secretary, former prime minister, he was on a trip to the region last week, and he was echoing some of this U.S. language about have to, uh, maybe they could, it seems like there's something cooking where maybe some of the Western allies or the U.N., there could be some recognition of a path to an establishing a Palestinian state, even if Netanyahu doesn't want to do it. My my next question was going to be about the, the feasibility still of the normalization of ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia that October 7th kind of derailed or, or delayed. We're not sure yet. Part of that, you mentioned U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's civilian nuclear program. Some of the discussion before had been about the, the, the Saudis wanting to enter into like a formalized treaty alliance with the United States. Is that still on the board? My understanding, which um, which is predates, just, just predates October 7th, was that the U.S. and Saudi Arabia had agreed to something that would be short of that, something more than major non-NATO ally, which I think is what Qatar has. doesn't have to be like a NATO-type treaty, um, but they want something in writing. They want something, and they want to make sure they get like certain weapon systems don't get gummed up by Congress and, and things like that. So, but they, they seem still quite interested somewhat to my surprise, not so much because yeah. of, not so much because of, of God. And in some ways, I think maybe when they see how much the U S helped Israel after October 7th, I think they like that. I think they want something like that where they, that prove, I don't know. I think the Saudis would like to be in that kind of relationship with the United States or, or it won't be like that, but you know, but Israel's not a NATO ally. The U S doesn't have a NATO treaty type ally with Israel either. So yeah. it's interesting to me because in recent years, you know, Mohammed bin Salman has sort of tried to run this two tracked relationship with the United States while also fostering a closer partnership with China, right? Like the Chinese sort of helped broker that thing between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So establishing a treaty alliance with the US is kind of contrary to that. Right. I guess evidently he doesn't th- think so, and that huh. he thinks he can have all of them. And 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 there's more interesting papers recently on middle powers like Saudi Arabia hedging their bets with the you know the different 
major powers. Israel hasn't put forward an official plan for Gaza after the war, as we discussed a bit earlier. Netanyahu indicated that he wants some international organization or perhaps Egypt to take responsibility for governing the Strip, uh, which seems to be a non-starter for the Arabs. And he's long been vocal in his view that a uh, two-state solution is no longer viable. Meanwhile, his national security minister, uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir, and certain other Israeli far-right nationalists are openly calling to repopulate Gaza with Jewish settlers. This comes as the Biden administration is reportedly discussing uh, whether to recognize Palestine as a state. Could we interpret these discussions as an effort to outrun the Israeli far-right? Oh, that is a really good question. Um, I, th- I think it's a little complicated. I-, I actually don't think that there's a serious Israeli government plan to resettle the Gaza Strip. I'm not saying that people don't say it there. Maybe, maybe some figures there mean it. But I think I saw an Israeli defense official several weeks ago make a comment like, you know, you, that would requ- require the Israeli military to occupy it, basically, to secure it. They, 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 yeah. They, you know, so I don't think that's really viable. I mean, you saw like, um, it was actually very tragic. Several weeks ago, there were there were like 21 um, Israeli soldiers killed when they were basically, they've been, they've been blowing up a, a, a buffer zone um, between Israel and Gaza inside the Gaza Strip. The U.S. says it doesn't support the, demolishing the, houses but they but they're they, they got hurt yeah. while being attacked while they were trying to blow up a building and so, so anyhow um i don't know what kind of territorial compensation will be made could could be made to compensate the palestinians in gaza for the reduction de facto reduction in their territory from this from this buffer zone but israel is clearly going ahead and doing it anyhow you saw it seems by the way that israel's talking about the u.s having to get Hezbollah basically to agree to to move further north on the Lebanese border because mm-hmm. they basically wants a buffer zone there as well and and it seems like Hezbollah actually is potentially amenable to that so I don't know I it, it you know just today Netanyahu issued a um, an order for the Israeli military to submit a plan for how to evacuate the over one million Palestinians sheltering and living in the Gaza, Egypt, border city, Rafa, uh, mm-hmm. before Israel, Israeli military operations there. So that's the, I mean, they had not even done that. And this is a place that they're talking about being their next military target. And Israeli officials, U.S. officials on, on Blinken's trip this week were shocked that there was no plan. There was no plan for doing this. And this is not only um, all the Palestinians living there who were forced to go there, by the way, because Israel told them to leave everywhere else. But this is where the foreign nationals, including American citizens, go in and out, go out um, when they can get out. And this is where all the humanitarian aid goes in. And this is what the entire population, um, starving population, is dependent on. So my point is that if, if Israel hadn't even done a plan for a tactical military operation, they're imminently planning you can see how little of the post-war thinking is being done on the Israeli side. They're still very much in the war thinking. They're still in the war. And they're, they're really, and I, there was a, I know it's boring, but this is something I have to do a lot as a journalist who doesn't, I can't, you know, be a fly on the wall in the calls between the U.S. and Israeli officials. But you read these readouts and you can kind of get a sense when you've read, read a gazillion of them um, of, of how to interpret them, how to annotate them. And there was one today between Secretary of Defense Austin and Israeli Defense Minister Galan. And and Austin's was all, we wanted to talk about post-war Gaza planning, um, 
getting more humanitarian aid in, protecting the civilian population. And Galant was all continuing military operations, ongoing. It was just, they were just different worlds. There was not a single mention of civilians, not a single mention of humanitarian aid, not a single mention of post-war in the Israeli defense ministry. Read out. You know, they're just in different places. Yeah. What would U.S. recognition of a Palestinian state mean both for Israel under its current government and for the region as a whole? I don't know. I mean, partly it seems like this is um, the U.S. administration sees this as a way to get Saudi and Arab world buy-in for being supportive of an effort to peaceably to have a more peaceable future, basically, for the Israelis and Palestinians. That seems to mm-hmm. be the price. price of admission for the Saudis to bring the Arab world along, right, to, to help with that part, whatever right. the war situation is. And so if that, and so, if, if you know, I am, it won't be immediate. It won't be, it doesn't seem like their sovereignty will be absolute anytime soon. And it seems like there's some U.S. concession to Netanyahu's previous remarks that Israel still has to control the security for the, at least for the perimeter. Does that make for their own security? They feel like a lot of this. I'm not saying it's all fake, but I think some of the diplomacy now that some of the language about Palestinian stated falls into the category of not fake and not symbolic, but the ways you unlock something else. For another example, um, and, and Biden kind of references, and then he was careful last night. Israel doesn't want to say that they would agree to a, a ceasefire with Hamas for the hostage for the release of all the hostages, right? So there's this formula now being framework now being negotiated that is about a an extended pause that could be ex- further extended. Hamas is asking for more. Israel is asking for less time for the pause. But the U.S. and Biden said this is clearly hoping that if they get any kind of pause, that it can be turned into a ceasefire. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. A couple more questions just to as we start to wrap up here. Speaking on a personal level, I found this war to be particularly disturbing and in ways I haven't felt before. Part of it is Hamas's truly breathtaking brutality that started it. Part of it's the scale of devastation and suffering inflicted on ordinary Palestinians that we've covered today. Part of it's the threat of escalation across the region. Part of it's the impossibility and ugliness of the surrounding discourse it's resurfaced some of the darkest aspects of the human condition. G- given all we've we've, we've covered, uh, do you think the war's end is in sight? And given how you answer that, what do you think the path ahead for the Middle East holds in store? Um, <laughs> Easy one. <laughs> by the way, I share as a human being your um, horror and and despair over it, and it's it's really been excruciating. And the true sense of trauma on both sides is so profound and also hey, there's a there's another substacker um maybe some of your listeners may be interested in um mark, yeah, mark shulman who has um one called um tel aviv diary and he writes every day does just like a daily straight ahead dispatch and, and, and i get such a sense from him of like how israelis are seeing things and even though i follow the news as closely as i can and um, I've been to Israel several times and, and follow the U.S. diplomatic efforts. It is so profoundly different. They don't see what we see. Does that make sense? And th- when you when you read something like that from a very straightforward um, center left person on the Israeli side, not a Netanyahu supporter, and you see that they just don't see the Gaza. They don't see the suffering in Gaza, and they don't. Re- and whenever there's some horrible incident, like some Palestinian journalist. Uh, 
killed by the Israeli military in a driving in a car a few weeks ago. He had a, um, and they just think it's a Hamas. They just assume it's a Hamas person. You know what I mean? And at some some on social media, you'll see it, it goes. It's this game of telephone. You'll see um, Palestinians show you Israeli soldiers' social media posting what they're proud to show to their people back home of what they're interrogate people they're interrogating in Gaza and whatever. And you know, someone stripped, tied to a chair, and the Israelis see it as a terrorist, and they're getting the terrorist. And you're watching it from over here, and it looks like, you know, you don't know. Anyhow, it, do you understand? Like they, they yeah. all just see it so profoundly differently. They don't see each other suffering. They're they're still all very sunk into their um, and and it's it's just horrible. And yeah, it's horrible. And you see also the U.S. administration really getting beaten up over being perceived widely perceived, especially by Arab Americans and young Americans, even not Arab Americans, but Jewish Americans. Um, as as being over, somehow feeling more, identifying more with the Israeli suffering than the Palestinian suffering. In terms of the, your bigger question on where does the Middle East go, gosh, I don't know. It's it really looks. Um, it does feel a little bit like we may be getting towards the end. If is Israel and the U.S. are still quibbling over going from high intensity to low intensity operations, if Israel has taken a month longer than the U.S. wanted, and it looks like it's going to take another month, and there may be still some. Were targeted operations after that. I guess that's sort of how I feel it. On the on the bigger question, I don't know. I I do think that the Saudi Israel interest in normalization seems to have it seems persistent. Especially the Saudis seem to think it's in their interest, and they seem to think the offer from the Biden administration is good enough. I do think a lot depends on the larger Middle East and stability in the Middle East. You know, it depends on who we have as U.S. president, and who knows what's going to happen with that next year. Um, although there is a surprising degree of convergence between, in some ways, between Biden and Trump on supporting this normalization process, um, seeing Iran as the as the actor, malevolent actor in the region, um, kind of that still being a big organizing principle for U.S. diplomacy in the region. Yeah. Well, I was 11 at the time, but I mean, we both remember post 9-11 America well, you know, the the freedom fries and the you're either with us or against us. And I mean, if you look at like Israel's relatively small population, the people they lost on October 7th, the, 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 the number of people that they lost on October 7th, for us, it would be the equivalent of losing about 11,000 people in a terrorist attack. And this isn't to, to excuse or minimize the IDF's conduct in their response at all. But I mean, I think if we, I, I, I know if we lost 11,000 people in a terrorist attack, we would lose our minds here. Totally. I totally agree with you. I uh, totally agree with yeah. you. And it came out of nowhere, right? It came out of nowhere. And the, and the, you know, people at a music festival and the baby, you know, we saw even with the, some of the hostages who've gotten released, these small children and elderly, elderly ladies, and they're still elderly, yeah. holding you know, elderly people. And it's, it's just, yeah, I mean, I, I think it just really speaks to the profound trauma on both sides of that border that has to be somehow dealt with here. Correct, and um, and you, but you can see, as you're mentioning, the kind of trauma that we can imagine the U.S. response. Um, Israelis don't feel in the mood to um, 
many Israelis don't feel in the mood to feel like the Palestinians are um, our trustworthy security partner. You know what I mean? And a lot of, and the, as you know, a lot of the kibbutzim that were attacked by Hamas that are near the Gaza border, they tend to be the more left-leaning, pro-peace people. And so those people were just so profoundly despairing of, yeah. 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 Um, Laura, anything else you'd like to cover today that we haven't? Well, can I... Switch topics and recommend a spy novel. Please do. Lighten it up a little bit. So yeah. there, um, I saw someone on Twitter recommend it. That's um, a former MI6 operative. He, he has a pseudonym for the author name Charles Beaumont. It's called Spy Alone. It's very good. And it seems extremely... Have you read it? Well, so we, we usually don't like to advertise future guests on the podcast in case something falls through. Yeah. But in this case, the interview's already been recorded. My co-host, Chris Carr, talked to him. Um, I'm not quite sure when that'll air, but it's coming. I, I, I haven't read it, but Chris has. Okay, well, I, I, um, I, have, I haven't finished it, but it's quite... There's a few sort of Hollywood scenes, but in general, it seems awfully close to reality. A lot, a lot of it seemed very close to reality. Um, uh, it's about Russian penetration of, of England, kind of, of okay. over the years. And yeah. Um, yeah, anyhow, how are you? Are you doing any spy writing these days? Uh, I am uh, for years have been. I mean, I've been dealing with a couple other projects on the side, and like I, I went to grad school and everything. But um, I uh, been sort of bogged down in the second volume of my. Um, active measure series that'll probably land somewhere in 800 page range. So it's still, do you have a still ongoing. That makes you, uh, get down no, a little bit or you going to, uh, I'm all, I'm all, I'm all indie. Um, I never bothered to, to even with the first book, I never bothered to query a traditional publisher. Cause I mean, like I was 26 when I published the first one and you know, it was like sort of just as big. I knew that there was no way it was going to get picked up. So I'm all indie. Um, I probably when I'm, Close to finishing the manuscript for this second one, I would probably like to look for an editor in some regard. Um, but it's a very big and complicated novel. And I'll tell you what, and listeners, uh, the past four months watching what's been happening and knowing what I've been sort of writing in my own scenarios, I have been clenched. <laughs> yeah. Would you is do you have a title for the next for this volume, or is it just so this the series is called Active Measures. So part one is the first book. Um, then this is part two, and there's there'll be five volumes. Okay. Wow, that's incredible. Um, yeah. Well, anyhow, pick it up, pick it, and let me know when to hear well, the uh, Charles Beaumont. We'll do. Yeah, it's a good that's a good trailer for the upcoming show. Thank you for having me. I hope the next time we talk that there there there's some um, hopeful news for and peaceful news for people in the Middle East and and for all of us. For sure, for sure, absolutely. Uh, where can listeners find more about you and your work? Thank you. Um, I my main gig now is I write the diplomatic Substack, diplomatic.substack.com. I try to publish once or twice a week on U.S. foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we'll have links to that and your Twitter, where you're very active. Um, in the show notes, Laura Rosen. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure speaking with you. A pleasure to talk to you. Take care.
Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.